Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. I'm assuming everyone can hear me okay without a mic, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's a huge room. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to throw a phone at you. <laughs> well, let's start off with prayer. Father, again, we just praise you for today um, that we get to gather here and study. Um, God, we just always ask that you'd give us those opportunities to share your gospel, Lord, um, that we can do it in love and not to be defensive, but that we can share your light and your hope. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So it had occurred to me, I know I've mentioned, hi guys, I'm Sean, by the way. <laughs> it had occurred to me um, that I've mentioned the Colombo method a couple of times in class. And those of you that didn't attend um, when Alan was here from Stand to Reason, um, the Colombo method, it's basically asking questions. In my day, this is my old fogey speech, back in my day, we used to call it the Socratic method from Socrates. And basically whenever anyone has an objection or, they're, or they have any type of issues, um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, let's see here. <laughs> so the idea is whenever anyone offers an objection, we've always been on the defensive, we meaning Christians, right? To have to answer their objection immediately, give proofs and reasons and evidences. But the idea is why not make them prove what they're saying to be true, right? Sometimes it works a little too well. Um, sometimes it's unfair. Like if somebody says there is no God, okay, can you prove that? Well, that's a philosophical impossibility to prove the non-existence of a thing. But I really wanted to teach you guys um, now what's being called the Columbo method. Again, old fogey, if you guys ever watched Columbo TV show, um, you know, he just the facts, man, right? And he'd always say, oh, and one more thing, he'd come back and be asking questions. What do you mean by that? So I really wanna share with you to start three questions um, when you guys talk and you have these conversations. Three questions to use in your evangelistic toolkit. Are you guys taking out papers? Do you want me to wait for, yep, for notes? Okay. <laughs> you good, Margaret? Okay. So three little questions that you can learn to ask and it's gonna help you out in a variety of situations. So what are the three? It's the first one, what do you mean by that? The next one, why do you think that? And then the last one, have you ever wondered? So let's deal with the first one. Or do you guys need me to wait or slow down? What was the last one? The last one is have you ever wondered? So let's deal with the first one. What do you mean by that? So. Let's take some scenarios, some hypothetical situations. Let's begin. Let's imagine that you're the very sociable type and you wanna reach out to your community at Christmas so you decide somewhere in middle December you're gonna have your neighbors over for Christmas snacks. Maybe some of you do this. It's a great way to get to know people, invite all the neighbors around, bring me for mold wine, cookies, whatever. It's great. However, those of us that live way out in country, this is not really a thing. I mean, if you ever uttered the phrase, I have to go to town for dot, 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 this one's not gonna apply to you. However, imagine some other social type of situation, okay? You've got all the neighbors in the house or you're at like an office Christmas party or something. They've all come around, it's going really, really well, lovely evening, and you're thinking, this is wonderful, this is great. We're, I'm getting to know a whole bunch of new people, great idea, I should have done this years ago. And then you're chatting with one neighbor and the conversation's going quite well when suddenly maybe they notice the Bible on the coffee table. Or maybe you prayed before serving the snacks. Maybe it's something you've said. So your neighbor figures out that you're now, quote, one of those people, right? Who actually believes this stuff. And your friend or your neighbor, coworker, looks at you and says, oh, you're not one of those people who takes Christmas seriously, are you? I mean, come on, nobody takes this stuff seriously. Believing in God is just like believing in Santa Claus. It's a nice story for children, but there's no evidence that God exists. Is there? And of course, he's asked the question rather loudly. And you can hear the other conversations in the room dying away 
you know what I mean? That awkward where you just start to hear everything come down, silence, and people are looking sideways at you. And I guess you're thinking now, what do you say? Do you all of a sudden get on the defensive and start arguing proof and evidence for the existence of God? I mean, you're the host, at least in this scenario. Or if it's an office party, I mean, you can't, what if it was your boss asking you that question? Then what? How do you respond to that? You can't be too aggressive or it's going to look very, very bad. You want to give some kind of answer. Other people are listening at this point. What do you say? How do you handle this thought that God is like Santa Claus? There's no evidence, so on. Have you guys ever heard anything remotely similar to that argument? Okay. Well, rather than give a 45-minute lecture on the existence of God, this is where the what do you mean by that question comes to the rescue. What if, in this case, you simply looked at the person, your friend, your neighbor, whomever, and you said, you know, that's a really interesting perspective. I just wonder, when you say that belief in God is like belief in Santa Claus, what do you mean by that? And then we be quiet and let them explain further. Why do we do that? Well, because when folks are fleshing out their argument, you're gonna notice one of two paths. At least in my experience, it's been one of two paths. Usually it's gonna come rooted in some type of deep emotional hurt that came either from like the church in the past or some quote religious person in the past that wronged them, why they no longer believe in God. Very, very rarely, but these people are, in my opinion, more fun, it's an intellectual reason why they have these questions, and then you can kind of direct the conversation from there. So that's why we ask that. What do you mean by that? You can continue. I know people who became Christians in adulthood. I'm one of them. I was 21, 22, I think, by the time I ended up getting saved. I don't know anyone who started believing in Santa Claus in adulthood. Do you? No. I don't know... You know you can go to the library, take out serious books on Christian faith and evidences, but I don't know you can take out any serious books on the belief in Santa Claus. What do you mean by that? So what does this end up doing, that simple question, what do you mean by that? Quite simply, it lets us sit back. It lets them examine why they're saying what they're saying. I mean, are they saying it because they actually have this rooted belief, and like I said, it's one of two paths, either an emotional hurt or an intellectual belief, or are they just repeating the uh, readily available soundbite that they read on Facebook or Instagram or something? Or you might pick up the word evidence. You might say, you know, you said that there's no evidence that God exists. What do you mean by that? Get where I'm going with this? Having them prove what they're saying. What evidence would you need to see that might convince you that there might be something to God after all? Have you guys ever asked an atheist that question? What evidence do you need to prove to you that God might exist after all? Seriously, I want you guys to ask that question of an atheist and see what the answers are. Usually, they're not very strong answers. They're not, it's not an expected question um, to an atheist. When I was an atheist, Dr. Kent Hovind asked me that question, and I was very taken aback by it. Uh, 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 I don't know what evidence I would need to see in order to believe that God exists. See, these are just open-ended questions that might start a discussion. You might even pick up on the word God. You might say to your friend, your boss, you know, it's interesting that you used the word God. What do you mean by that word? Because different people mean different things by the word God, don't they? One of the best-selling atheists in the world, Richard Dawkins, at Oxford University, wrote a book called The God Delusion. And it sold something like 7.5 million copies. And I always say, Richard Dawkins may not believe in God, but his bank manager and his agent certainly do. That's interesting, isn't it? But Richard, in his book, The God Delusion, says that he doesn't believe in a sort of psychopathic, mega-maniacal sort of bully who lives in the sky flinging lightning bolts at people. Aha! He doesn't believe in a particular perception of a God, right? It's not that he's not believing in the existence of a creator being. He's not believing in the existence of a misperceived notion of the God of the Bible. That is what he is not believing in. I remember reading that in Dawkins' book years ago and thinking, well, I don't, well, this is when I was, after I was saved, well, I don't believe in that type of God either. That's not the God of the Bible. So that makes me an atheist, I guess, again. 
You know, I'm kind of coming full circle here, right? But what kind of God does your friend, coworker, neighbor, boss not believe in? See, that's why we ask these questions, because we can actually get to the root of the problem of, of where their unbelief lies. Just the mere broad statement, I don't believe in God. We, in our minds, are assuming the God of the Bible. We're assuming the, the picture of Christ, the creator God in John 1, right? That may not be what they're defining God in their mind as, just as Richard Dawkins doesn't. He doesn't have that God in his mind. Maybe, just maybe, it might give us the opportunity to describe the God that we believe in throughout the course of this conversation. Merely saying, what do you believe, or what do you mean by that, would just open the conversation up in a potentially, possibly non-threatening way, I believe. So that's the first question. What do you mean by that? So the second one, why do you think that? A little different, but this one's even more fun. It works in a similar way. So you say, quote, what do you mean by that? And you pick up on a term or a word or a phrase that your friend has used and you try to dig a little bit deeper into the conversation. Now, what does this assume if you're responding in this way? Okay, have you guys ever noticed there's two types of people in a conversation, those who li listen and those who wait to talk? <laughs> so you cannot be the latter. You can't be the one that waits to talk. You have to be actually listening, engaging in what they are saying. You have to listen to how they're phrasing it very specifically. And when you say, why do you think that? You have to pick up on a very specific phrase of what they had said. That's why you want to try to use that to dig a little deeper into that conversation. Why do you think that? It begins to press a little bit into why the friend or colleague or person that you're talking to believes what they do. All right, time for another scenario. So this time you're at work. Maybe it's um, the run-up to Christmas or Thanksgiving or any of the holiday seasons, and you're in the office, it's all going well, there's a bit of banter going back and forth between you and your colleagues, and you happen to mention in passing that you're going to maybe sing carols at the park, or you're doing a Bible study, um, something you had read interestingly in Christianity Today, whatever, something that's going to give off the hint that you're a person of faith. And one of your slightly acerbic atheistic colleagues pipes up and he says, ah, good grief, not the Bible. It's bad enough at the best of times, but particularly at Christmas, you can't escape it. I hate carols. I hate Christmas. I hate the Bible. It's just full of legends, myths, fairy tales. It's just a bunch of garbage and rubbish. So let's imagine that this is not just your colleague. Maybe it's your direct supervisor. This is someone who's responsible for signing your paycheck at work directly. So how do you respond to this one? If you get too lippy, well, you might score a 10 out of 10 of evangelism, but you might find yourself in the unemployment line, right? So what do you say? And now other people in the office are looking or wherever you happen to work. So this person's completely thrashed on the Bible and has some skeptical things. They're saying it's filled with fables and legends, myths. What do you say? And of course, there's other colleagues listening at this point. Again, rather than going on the defensive or simply running away, what if you said to your friend or your boss of, you know, thanks for that perspective. I've heard other people say similar things, but I just wonder, could you tell me how it is that you've come to the conclusion that the Bible is a collection of myths and fables and legends and fairy tales. What do you think they're going to say at that point? Do you think they're going to say, well, I've read it through and through, and that's my conclusion? That's going to be a very rare response, right? If someone actually says that thing. You ask them, what led you to believe that? From experience of having actually done that, I have, one of two things are going to happen. The first possibility is that the colleague is going to say to you, well, it's because of this reason, and then he or she will give you a reason. It's usually pretty weak, but it could be a reason. But however, at this point, that's brilliant because now you can do one of two things. If you have the time and the conversation's kind of got the space to breathe and you know the answer, then by all means, you can explore it with your friend or boss, saying that's a really good perspective. I just wonder maybe if you might consider and then you can you know, defend the position. You might share your perspective or if there isn't time and you don't know the answer, that's not a problem either. Go away and find the answer and then come back. Don't lie about it. Don't make stuff up. That just makes us look idiotic, us as in Christians. So by heavens, don't, don't do that. Get the answer and then next week you go back 
you knock on your boss's office door or your friends and you say, hey, you know that great question you raised the other week? I'm so grateful you raised it because as a Christian, I love to be thought through. And I hadn't thought about that question. You really made me think about it. And the great thing is that I found the answer. Would you like to hear it? See, I, I'm always ending with questions. Would you like to hear it? Well, they only have one of two responses, right? Sure or no. If they say no, then what? Exactly. Just walk away. That's literally what Jesus was talking about in casting your pearls before swine. It's, okay. I mean, it, it's arguing with a fool. Or you might get an opportunity, praise God, to share it with them. And that's the best of possible outcomes. There's a much greater possibility that when you ask this question, your colleague or your boss, your friend is going to say something like, well, everybody knows, dot, 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 everybody knows evolution is true. Everybody knows there is no God. So that's shorthand for, I read it on Facebook this morning. <laughs> that's what they're really saying, right? Or I watched it on CNN or whatever, MSNBC. Because your friend actually might be very brilliant, but that doesn't mean that they know anything about the Bible and theology and they're simply serving up secondhand skepticism. I was guilty of that too, as an atheist. Why would you want to take the time to research something that you hate so much? And if you do, what happens? Well, here I am today teaching an adult Sunday school class on apologetics because I did take the time and God changed me because I finally did because I hated it so much. Now, isn't that interesting that God used my hate of Christianity to save me? I think it's just really cool. <laughs> it's just kind of God's sense of humor. That's what he did with Paul. Exactly. That's exactly what he did with Paul, right? It's easier to take a cell and take Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you have passion one way or the other, it can be guided. So there's a couple ways to go forward from there in this scenario. You can take that conversation, if there's time, and ask a couple more questions, or you can just let it sit and let it be. But what will be interesting is that all of your fellow workmates who heard that conversation, they're gonna have seen what just transpired, what happened. Your colleague, maybe, or boss, was quite rude about your faith. Has anyone have that experience at a workplace? Someone was quite rude about you being a Christian. Yeah. Um, you asked the question, you asked them to support what they said, and then they had nothing, just crickets. And well, uh, they may go on for the opportunity of the conversations with other colleagues who maybe witnessed this exchange. Someone may have noticed that and then come up to you afterwards and said, huh, you know, I've had the same questions, but yeah, when you ask that question, I don't have those answers either of why I believe that. And all you've done is to ask your friend to just justify their position. And I don't believe that's threatening at all. I don't believe it's being insubordinate. Mm -hmm. It's just simply asking them, why do you believe this way? You see, I think we live in an age where people have forgotten that when you advance propositions, you really ought to give reasons. You can't just make blind statements and spew out a thing without having an evidence for it. And that's very popular today. And in my mind, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't hold water. In fact, Somebody said that advancing a proposition or making an argument is a lot like building a house. When you build a house, you should build the walls and then put the roof on the top. If you try to build the roof with no walls, you're going to have it looking really weird. People do this with arguments and propositions. They'll say they believe things and then give absolutely no reasons for them. As Christians, I think that with our friends, our bosses, our skeptical neighbors, Without being rude, without being aggressive, we can simply challenge people when they say things and make assertions. We can challenge them and say, what are the reasons you believe this? Isn't that what they're asking us? Mm -hmm. Why do you believe that to be true? And do that in a gentle, engaging way, and then see what happens. I think these are much more fruitful conversations than just immediately going into the defensive, because where you guys have had those conversations too, I'm sure, and then they last hours and they end up going nowhere because it's going to jump from topic to topic to topic. First, it may start on one particular thing. Then it's going to jump on, you know, isn't Christianity misogynistic or isn't Christianity homophobic, right? It just keeps going on and on. And then it really just doesn't lead anywhere. And then the last question that we ask, have you ever wondered? So those are the first two questions on my list. What do you mean by that? And why do you think that? And now this last question, have you ever wondered? So why would we ask that? Have you ever wondered? 
See, like what Lucy was pointing out, it works great when you have someone with passion one way or the other. Hey, if they hate Christianity and Christians and the Bible with all their being, that's awesome because I can work with that. But you guys are probably thinking, yeah, but most of my friends are just utterly apathetic. They really don't care one way or the other. What do I do with that? They don't care about spirituality. They don't care about faith. Trying to have spiritual conversations with them is like trying to nail water to a wall. It, it doesn't work. How do you start spiritual conversations with people who really have absolutely no interest in the matter? How do you start those kinds of conversations? See, this is where the have you ever wondered question comes to our rescue. Basically, how the have you ever wondered question works is that it encourages you to think about or to look for the things in your friend's life, uh, things they're passionate about, things they care deeply about, but things that really only make sense if God exists. Let me unpack that a bit, get where I'm going here. Everybody on this planet is gonna have a passion about something. Something's really gonna wind them up. It can be whatever, quilting, uh, backpacking, <laughs> crocheting, kayaking, whatever. It's going to be something, right? Somebody is gonna have a passion, something that they really, really dig. Now we ask that question, have you ever wondered? Because those things, those passions really only make sense if God exists and we use them gently to begin a conversation. All right, let's give a non-holiday related example. So one of um, mine and my wife's favorite activities is we like to go hiking and kayaking, right? I love going hiking in the mountains and trying not to fall off of them. Um, going to try this upcoming hiking season uh, to regularly have conversations with people on the mountaintops and it's gonna go along the lines of this and I haven't done it before So I'm challenging myself and I want to challenge you guys too if you're into that What an absolutely incredible view because imagine if you guys are standing on top of Mount Si or you've climbed mailbox peak or You know anywhere and, and you're looking on these beautiful views and, and there's someone next to you probably I mean especially post COVID. I mean the trails are packed mm. <laughs> right? So you're gonna find somebody looking at the same pretty view and say, what an absolutely incredible view. Isn't this very, very beautiful just to have a conversation? What are they gonna say, no, really? <laughs> you know, you just climbed to 6,000 feet in elevation game in like three hours to say no? I doubt it. But then the follow-up question. Now here's the one that I'm challenging myself to do and I want you guys to think about this. Why do you think it, as human beings, we're so drawn to natural beauty? Why is it that we spend so much time and effort, those that love the outdoors, you know, lugging ourselves of great lumps of rock to stand at the top and look at this view. If human beings were only designed by evolution for survival and reproduction, there must be an easier way to survive and reproduce than to lug ourselves on top of mountains and to invest huge amounts of energy exploring far-flung parts of the planet. But why are human beings so drawn to natural beauty? Ask the person that. I know the answer as a Christian, why? Why do we like to see those pretty things? Anyone, give me an answer. Because the evidence in the Creator is in creation. Exactly. Because it's evidence of God's handiwork. You're taking a look at it and you're like, wow, that is so cool. Look what He created. See, of course, if God exists, it makes a lot of sense to ask that question. But if you're asking this person that's on the top of the mountain or, you know, at the mouth of the Cowlitz or wherever you've kayaked or hiked, and you're, and you're looking at this beautiful thing and you ask them that question, and if God doesn't exist, what's going to be their answer? Well, who, because it's pretty. Uh, well, who cares? Why? The vibes, the vibes are good. Oh Lord. <laughs> yeah, let's to my yeah to my edible. <laughs> so, but by anything, okay. The point is, when we look at these pretty things, we're we're looking at them in awe of whoever designed them and who created them. Okay. I make no apologetics about it. I am not a city or a town person at all. Not even close, okay? So we like to see things that God created. However, I think it was last night we were watching on CSI, my wife and I, and this guy um, had this date with this gal on the rooftop in New York City. He's like, well, with the best view. And I mean, it's like sirens and gunshots and like, you know, rapes and everything going on down below. And we're like, oh. <laughs> That is not something I want to no. know. However, 
Okay, it was pretty to him, and I'm not going to deny him that perception, but why was it? He said it's the best view because he's marveling at the architects, the engineers, everyone that created that view for him, right? He's still worshiping, in this case, man, okay, a little bit off kilter on where, where, where it should be, but the point is he's marveling at that view because somebody created it for him to look at. It's nothing I find pretty, but hey, to each his own. So this is actually a very C.S. Lewis type of approach to evangelism. Big surprise, right? I'm going to bring bring Lewis into this class again. C.S. Lewis had this lovely little phrase. He talked about signs of transcendence. Looking for these signs in your friend's life where the gifts of God are sort of breaking into their lives in different ways, and your friends then experience beauty. Your friends experience gratitude. Your friends experience love and meaning and purpose and significance and wonder. And your job as a Christian is to say to those friends, have you ever wondered where those things come from and where those things point towards? See, the gospel in itself is actually an answer to a question, right? So these three questions, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that? And have you ever wondered? As I always say, questions are very, very powerful. And it's a powerful tool in having natural conversations about Christ, about the gospel, about faith at any time of the year. But actually, certainly in the holiday season, it it just becomes a little bit easier. I think folks are more willing to talk at that point. Or those of us in the Northwest, once we finally emerge from hibernation and wetness and the sun starts to come out, people are just naturally happier and want to to talk more, right? See, and they're very powerful, not least because, as I say, we're following the example example (laughs) of the master question asker, Christ himself, but they're also powerful for one last reason I want to leave you with, and it's this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I think one reason that questions are so powerful in evangelism is because the gospel is itself an answer to a question, and what do I mean by that? Well, in Mark 8, we have this fascinating little episode that Mark reports to us. He says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do you say that I am? That's a very important question, right? Who do you say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I read the, um, the scriptures, especially in these stories, my mind starts to take over, and I like imagine movie type things, right? So I have this like cinematographic mind when I read this, and there's certain scenes in the Gospels where I can almost close my eyes and see it in my mind's eye. And this is absolutely one of my favorite ones, and it has been since I've been saved. I can picture the scene. Here's Jesus and his disciples walking through the countryside. Now, my idea of countryside versus, uh, you know, Judean countryside is obviously different. (laughs) You know, so there's not pine trees and things, but I'll have to imagine it. And Jesus asked one of the innocent questions that's going to go somewhere quite devastating. The disciples don't see this coming. And he turns to his disciples and says, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples, you know, I think they're having some fun at this point. Ah, oh, Jesus, you're never going to believe those crowds. They don't know anything, Lord. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. You know, we met this guy in Cana of Galilee who thought that you were Donald Trump. <laughs> the list goes on and on. And I love to imagine Jesus having a laugh about those crowds. Aren't they funny, those crowds? But then suddenly, out of the blue... Of course, Jesus turns the tables, doesn't he? If you know what comes next, he turns to them, he says, all right, well, that's the crowd's version. What about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And that's the point which I can imagine all the disciples falling quiet. There's no more laughing, no more banter. There's sort of an embarrassed silence because now they're put on the spot. And I imagine the disciples kind of nudging each other, you know, Thaddeus, you tell him. No, I don't speak in the gospels, man. (laughs) and then they then they nudge thomas thomas you tell him i'm thomas i don't know anything mate (laughs) finally peter speaks up and it's peter that has the courage to say well you're the christ you're the messiah the son of the living god who do you say that i am that's the question that jesus asked the crowds and he asked individuals And he asked religious leaders, and he asked the disciples, 
It's a question that Jesus asks every single one of us, and that is the gospel invitation. Who do we say that Christ is? Who do you say that I am? Our answer to that determines so many other things. And I think that because the gospel is a question, who do you say that Jesus is? That's why gently using questions in evangelism with our friends and our neighbors, our colleagues, I think that is why it's so powerful. Christ used it. He asked the very question. Because as we use these questions, we help to bring them, these people, right, these doubters, uh, face to face with the ultimate question of Jesus and who he is. So again, what are those questions? What do you mean by that? Why do you think that? Have you ever wondered? Three powerful questions. Take them away, try them out during everyday life. See what happens as you start using these questions in evangelism. So my prayer is that as you do that boldly, uh, or maybe falteringly at first, you're going to stumble, you're going to mince up the words, but you're going to draw your friends into conversations, and then you'll discover that the Lord can work through you in incredible ways, just as he works through the questions in the Gospels. So I hope that clears up what I've mentioned in passing, right, with the Colombo method. Now you have an idea of those questions and how they work. So what's that going to lead us to um, for the next weeks or or months uh, in in our class? I was thinking of dealing with um, the atheistic worldview more in depth as far as understanding why. Because, Margaret, you mentioned last week, like, um, the, what, what in the world did they even call it? Um, what was that sexuality thing? Non-binary. Thank you. Non-binary. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff stems from a root cause. Um, when I was in college, there was this cool picture. I think, what's Ken Ham's ministry? Uh, Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis. And he had this picture of um, a, a, like a, a warship, a pirate ship, and then a fort. And the pirate, sh- the fort was Christianity and the pirate ship was the world, right? And the, the pirate ship is, you know, flinging uh, cannonballs at, at different aspects, say, of, of Christianity. Um, abortion or moral morality or, or whatever. And then what's the base of, of Christianity? Well, in the beginning, God created. And then what's the base of the, the pirate ship? Is it promiscuity? Is it drug use? Is it sexuality? Is it non-binaryism? No, that's not the base. The base is atheism. It's that root belief that God cannot and does not exist. So if we start to go after that, I believe, as a church or as evangelistic Christians, then we can be much more effective in dealing with those other conversations that we have. Because if we're just you know, spending our time taking pot shots at all these other things that actually aren't the base. It's like the, um, what's that Greek monster where you cut off its head and 10 more grow back? Hydra. Hydra. Yeah. It's like that, right? Where it just keeps coming. When you're dealing with the symptoms. You're not doing, dealing with the root cause. Right. So that's why, if you guys are okay, I wanted to spend a lot more time fleshing out atheism and this belief that God cannot and does not exist. Well, it's really deconstructing their faith in a faithless belief. I mean, that's a exactly. religion. It's deconstructing their religion. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. So, and again, by these questions, ways to attack atheism, I'll leave us with this before we close. So atheism is an intellectual position. It's, it's a faith-based system. What reasons do you have for holding that position? Asking the atheist. Your positions are based on logic and evidence, or lack of it, in this case. So is there any reason or evidence for you holding your position that you defend? Actual reasons and actual evidence. If you say that, ev- that atheism um, needs no evidence or reason, then are you holding a position that has no evidence or rational basis? If so, isn't that just a blind faith and that's what you're accusing me of? If you say that atheism is supported due to the lack of evidence for God, then it is only your opinion that there is a lack of evidence. You cannot know all evidence for or against God, and therefore you cannot say that there is no evidence for God. Your atheism then is nothing more than an opinion. But if it is, should you derogatorily argue against Christians and in favor of your opinion? That becomes very popular today, right? And we went over relativism last week where someone's opinions equals them as a whole, their their actual core being. 
If you say that atheism needs no evidence to support it because it's a position about the lack of something, then do you have other positions that you hold based upon a lack of evidence? Doesn't that seem like an odd premise? Like say, screaming blue ants. Do you hold the position that they do not exist or that you lack belief in them too? I mean, has anyone ever seen a screaming blue ant? How do you know that they don't exist? <laughs> People behave according to what they believe, do they not? Not what they lack belief in. So then if you're an atheist and you work against the idea that God exists, then aren't you behaving in a manner consistent with your beliefs? So that's why I wanted to really start diving into atheism. Well, and also, if you go into all these conversations knowing that God hardens and softens those of the hearts he wills, right? you're just, you're just a conveyor of truth. truth. Yep. And then how it falls on them is actually the Holy Spirit's doing. And yep. then, mm. and typically, typically, they're going to go on the defensive. Yes. And if God has hardened their hearts and not allowed them to be softened to the truth, then they get very defensive and angry and they end up leaving because they simply cannot defend their faith in a, a non-existence of God. Right. And we've seen it. Yes, obviously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you can, you can portray the truth in the most gentle, loving way. And I think you said it a while ago to realize that you're not fighting with that person, but who's standing behind them in control. I didn't. I plagiarized from John Wiley's sermon. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, <laughs> John said that. Yeah, so, and understand that you're not fighting. Mostly it's loved ones. Mostly it's family members. Mm -hmm. And you're not fighting against them, but Satan who's controlling them. Yep. And then it's a spiritual battle. And until God softens our heart, that's not on you. And that's, that's the difficult thing to remember, mm -hmm. right? Because as we're having these conversations, you so badly want someone to, to just be like, okay. Yeah. That's it. I, I give up. I, I come to faith. And I've experienced in my Christian walk both um, complete opposite ends of, of that spectrum, right? I remember um, you two are new, so you haven't heard this once. Okay. So you guys haven't heard this story yet. This was after 9 11. Um, and how old are you guys? 23. Okay. So you were you're pretty young back in 2001. And <laughs> so back in, in 2001 is when 9-11 happened. And the months following 9-11 to, to fly was excruciating. I mean, because the security, we hadn't been used to that before. We really hadn't. We hadn't had to take our shoes off to go, you know, through TSA, all this weird stuff. That was when they began flying. Yeah. Yep. And, I mean, to see National Guard with M-16s in the airport with full magazines in the M-16s, not just a show of force, but actual locked and loaded, ready to go, was something else. So, uh, you, know, you can picture this. You can picture flying like that, right? So, obviously, everyone is really on, on nerve, on edge for flying. And this was back when I lived in California, and I was coming up to visit my sister, who lives here in Washington. She moved up here before I did. And I was in Bible school at the time, and I was reading my Bible on the plane. I was in the, uh, I was in the window seat on Alaska Airlines. And if you guys, there's on a, a 747, there's, there's three seats on each side. So the window, the, the middle seat, and the aisle seat. So I'm reading my Bible. And all of a sudden, I mean, everything but like audibly, the Holy Spirit is yelling at me to, to witness this lady right next to me reading her newspaper. <sighs> This is not something I really want to do. You know, this is not on my list of things to do right after 9-11, right? So, I mean, but I'm just like, no, God, I really, I just, I just don't, I don't want to do this. And the Spirit's yelling, witness to her. No, witness to her. All right, okay. I'll witness to her. So I started telling her about Jesus. So was this an amazing experience? Where She said, yes, tell me more about the Lord and Savior. No, she turned to me cussed me out and said, can't you just leave me the F alone? I want to read my effing newspaper, okay? <laughs> this was at the beginning of the flight. <laughs> Two hour and 30 minute flight. I'm like, that was awesome, God. Couldn't you have waited till the end of the flight? <laughs> this would have been much less awkward. So here I am sitting for, I don't even think we had even taxied off of the tarmac yet. So super cool. So that's one experience on that one. What happened to that? I have no idea, right? The other experience, which was, 
equally as cool, um, <laughs> we had preached a revival. I can't remember what town we were in. It was somewhere in Northern California. And uh, there was an atheist in the crowd. And I wasn't doing an apologetic message. I think it was on, on like, I don't know, something random, like John 4 or whatever. And all of a sudden, I mean, this girl stood up out of her, her chair. I thought, oh, great, here it comes. <laughs> you know, she's, oh boy, how to wrestle a girl to the ground without, you know, <laughs> this is going to be fun. I mean, she was doing everything but leaping over, over the, the seats. And what did she come up saying? She was just like the, the eunuch when she said, what must I do to be saved? That was so cool. So I've had both experiences of this. And the point of that is you don't know which one is going to be, but you do have a God-given mandate to go out and preach the gospel regardless. Regardless if someone's going to cuss you out at the beginning of a two and a half hour flight, or if they're going to leap over chairs asking what they must do to be saved. We don't know. But we got to preach the gospel. So that's the point of all this apologetics training. It's not for the unsaved. And I was spanked on that years ago back at Cal Baptist where, you know, God was like, great, you can win arguments. That's awesome. It's not why you're commissioned is to win arguments. You know, you're not the one that saves. You don't have that type of authority. You don't argue someone into the kingdom of heaven because someone better than you will come along and argue them out of the kingdom of heaven. That's not your job. So... The apologetics part is for us. It's to strengthen our faith, right? To give us the, the teeth to go out because, you know, we may have a faith that we believe something is true, but when you absolutely unequivocally know that it is true, when you go to teach that message, it just flows right out because, yeah, it's not your words and you know it to be true, 100% to be true. It makes things a lot easier. But... In order to understand that, that's why we're going to um, start diving into atheism at the, at the root beliefs of atheism. Um, I'll try not to get... Yeah, Margaret. Well, I have a question. Do you know what collectivism is? No, not yet, but I'll look at it. Okay. I, I don't know what it is either, necessarily. Uh -huh. I, I don't know enough Let's about it. it. Um, <laughs> but I believe it has to do with communism. It's something to do with oh, communism. Okay. okay. However, um, I'm reading... Tortured for Christ. Yeah. Rembrandt. Yeah. I've only scratched it, begun it, but um, then Mike was contacted by a young man who attends church here and asked if he would help him with a paper. He has to do a senior paper on collectivism. And Mike said, I know nothing about this. Yeah, me neither. Um, I can direct you to someone because it's for like a government presentation. And so then I start reading this book with by Richard Warren, and he's talking about how he was tortured for Christ. He's talking about his witness to the communists, and he said they, they're so, um, their minds are sold. You know, he, he was telling him about this one man, or woman, I don't remember, um, whether or not she believed, why doesn't he believe in God? He asked him that, and he says, I haven't been told to order to order to until to. I am told to until Concept. Thank you. Yeah, we yeah we we just we yes. just googled it here, and it says the doctrine that land and capital should be owned by society collectively or as a whole. Communism. Yeah, the principle or system of ownership and control of the means of production and distribution by the people collectively, usually under the supervision of a government. So I think though that it ends up being the minds too. I mean, I well, think they're brainwashed mm -hmm. to. Yeah. Only well, if you believe it politically, you're also gonna apply it to other points. Right. Yeah, but it's kind of scary that this is a, a thought that this boy is having to do in our country. Uh, uh, not a thought, but a, a, paper. a paper. Yeah. Uh, a way of... See, but the, the point, in, I think that just validates what I was talking about with going after the root cause of atheism. So where does the root of that belief begin? That you are no individualistic worth at all. You're only valued as a collective by someone overseeing you, i.e. a government. 
Well, then you don't believe in a special creator God. You don't believe that you are. A, didn't even think of no. believing in God because he hasn't been ordered to. Right. I mean, because you have no worth except for what the society or the government is telling you that you are worth. Right. Yikes. That's rather scary. Huh? Historically, that doesn't end right. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't end well. Okay, so that, that kind of confirms that to start diving into atheism and this root cause of, uh, or root belief, rather, of God's non-existence. So, any other questions, guys? Well, when we're doing these, um, I realize we're having some discussion now, but uh -huh. I would really like that we can have more discussion, too. Yeah. Even this whole thing that you just did, I find it difficult. I know I've heard this before. I heard, what's his name? Alan. Talk. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't like this. I mean, I <laughs> Thanks, Margaret. I can hear it from you, and I can hear it from Alan, and and yet I don't find it easy at all. I, I find it too too robotic in the sense that okay, if I can remember those words to say, I, I wish. don't know those next words. I can't think of how to say it. I find it okay. um, it it's fine for somebody who's got those thinking ways like you do, but I don't. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I love it logic. It, it's like when you have little children, you're starting to teach them how to kind of think for themselves. Yeah. And then when you get to have teenagers, you can't like tell them what to do anymore. You have to get them to to spin it around. It's like so. Why you know? Why do you do do that? Why you know? What 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 made you think that way? So they have to actually take responsibility for what's in, what's in their brain themselves instead of it's like you know. At one point, you can't tell your almost adult or your adult mm -hmm. children what to do and how to think anymore where you could when they were little. And so you have to just... I'm not, not saying it doesn't you have work, to under, it's not you, good. You just have I'm to, saying, oh, I, I know, have, you just have, I have to, trouble thinking this Yeah. <laughs> well, like as adults, we're not going to want to, we're not going to want to be told this is how to think, which sure. the collective idea is like that. But as adults, speaking to other adults, we need to just get them to think and we're not, you know, have to help them find the final answer before well the the, the kind of easy answer uh, with this in in dealing with with margaret's issue and i understand the reason why i present it this way because it works for me because i'm a total scientist tab a slobby type of guy right? right very mathematical very methodical in the way i approach things if i have i am that guy that will actually read the instructions before i begin to put something together <laughs> you know because i want to see how things work but the whole point of all this you can ignore all the specifics and the specific questions to ask Margaret. Just ask questions. Just ask them if they're going to say, I don't believe God exists. Okay, why? That's really the word. Yep, yeah. why? Just remember why. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> why? Yeah. When we taught this in the junior high, they have a video series on it. There's like four sessions of it. And a good chunk of the sessions have to do with role playing. Oh, okay. And one of the That's a good idea, that is actually. Well, it's not natural to ask questions like this. And doing it, you become more familiar with it. But the second piece, yeah. the big arguments they use for particularly the why do you believe this or you know, or some of the other questions is because most of the time in a discussion like that, they are trying to put you on the defensive. Correct. As soon as they have to defend their position, you're no longer on a hook. The other piece that they really talk about is if you don't know something, say you don't know it because right. now they have no argument against you because you've already said I don't know I don't know mm -hmm. you know and so it, it was actually really fun watching the junior high kids practice this because it wasn't natural to them most of them and yet by the fourth session or so they were pretty good with it so that's an idea I mean we can have role playing as far Mike as role-playing no this oh yeah i know <laughs> yeah and when it is played out in real life because i'm not scientist minded at all um and it played out with our family with chandler yeah um and walker and sissy did really well i wish we had a video of it i mean mm -hmm. it'd break my heart again but to watch because sissy and walker just put it back and okay chandler you tell us what gives you value. Right. Because what you're saying is, 
tell us where your value comes from. And he could not answer. And he got so defensive and angry, he actually got up and left. But right. that was the best played out scenario I've ever seen. It, it was. And, and, and to kind of recap yeah. that for the class and for those listening. So it was about critical race theory. Um, our gay, now atheistic son living up in Seattle or Olympia, wherever he's at now, um, was talking about critical race theory and how it needs to be taught everywhere. And we're saying that's the most racist document we've ever read. That's insane. I mean, you're literally saying... And we should feel sorry yeah, or you know, apologetic uh, about our white privilege. Right, right. We should be sorry because we were born in a, in a specific race. That's, that's nuts. And then he's going off about critical race theory on, on why it's such a good thing and why it should be taught. And then, it, of course, the conversation naturally goes to the, the statues that are being torn down of like General Lee, whatnot. And then the slavery and how evils of America and evils of slavery. And we're not denying that. We're not denying that slavery was an evil, evil practice. But then our son, other son, Walker, asked one of these Columbo questions. And he asked Chandler, why is it wrong to own slaves? What was Chandler's response to that? What? Why are you even asking me that question? No, Chandler, why is it wrong to own another human being? Oh, because it just is. That's just wrong. Why? Who cares about your feelings or your ideals? I don't care. Why is it wrong to own another person? Answer me this question. Uh, I just, uh. It's wrong because someone has their worth defined by God. They are a special creative act of God. And to enslave something in the image of our creator, that is wrong because the worth comes from them, not from you. And then what was his response? Exactly what we're saying. He just huffed and walked up off and then left. So that, yeah, Devin said no, that. No, he said, I give me my value. Right. And then that's just, that's, that's ludicrous, right? You guys have heard me quote C.S. Lewis at this point, And Lewis said it, not me. So forgive me. He says, to hell with your feelings. Because mm -hmm. he's right, right? Because your feelings are just not valid at that point. They're really not because they differ with everyone else's. So who cares? Yeah, it's trying to get to the crux of them. Yeah, and it's just like, asking okay, the questions. Why, why is it wrong to own a person? Why? Who gives you your value? Right. Who gives you your worth? And he could not answer that. Right. Yeah, because if your value and your worth comes only from you, then who's to say that someone who has a greater self-worth or greater self-perception of self-worth can then own you? Because their value worth tends to be greater than yours. Then why is that wrong? See, it's self-refuting. That's why we ask the questions and we just ask why. That's why you have to remember, Margaret, just why. Just ask them, why do, you, why do you believe slavery is wrong? Why do you believe it's wrong to own another person? Or whatever it happens to be. Why do you believe there is no God? Yeah, why do you believe there's no God? Mm -hmm. Yeah, question. Well, I just, I guess want to add some thoughts about what you said, Margaret, about it being difficult to do this question, these questions, and like, I'm reminded that, I know that it, it since the training of last year in January, the Alan Schlemann, um, I know that like, in our house, like, um, there's some, um, um, I think like, I know like there's struggles with pride and there's like disappointment in people that used to believe and they don't believe anymore. Mm. And like there's and there's pride in us and also like um, there are parts of childhood for some people that were not even childhood, but just even previous like significant experiences that like certain siblings weren't allowed to like take much space. Like they weren't allowed to you know, they weren't validated maybe as much in their opinions. And so sometimes in adulthood, there's this different opportunity <laughs> to be heard and to be, you know what I mean? And so I don't even, so it's almost like a, I don't know, like a trauma response or, or something like out there. And, um, and, and so, and I don't know if, if any of this, resonates with me. The other thing, though, is like sitting back and just asking the questions also requires even deeper trust in God. <laughs> you know, it's like even deeper to be like, yeah. ask these questions and Lord, like, you're going to plant the seeds. You know, like, or you're, you're going to be faithful, mm -hmm. you know, to continue the work in the in those people's lives. You know, and like, be, be at work in the unseen. Like, it's, 
anyway, those are just some reasons like I have reflected on. Um, I don't know, and I just was just this week listening to an audiobook, um, and um, it's by Kathy Lee Clifford, and it's such an awesome book, I think. And she was talking about um, tours of Israel and stuff, mm. and she was talking about Jesus and the disciples as they were going to Caesarea Philippi, and like this exact time when he was like, "Okay, like that's who I say I am. Who do you say I am?" And like. <laughs> The, the big significance of Peter standing up and like, you are the son of the living God, like, you're the Messiah, and like, um, that was, like, significant, and, and, um, and, like, how from there, that was like, okay, like, this is, you're the rock upon which this, our church is going to be built, and, like, the, and, you know, she was reflecting and saying how, like, the faith statement of saying, like, Jesus is who I am, like, that's what was going to make, that was going to be the foundation, the cornerstone of the church. It's not Peter himself right. in the flesh, but his faith being the cornerstone of every, absolutely everything in the structure depending on that cornerstone of faith. And so, like, it's so pivotal in that time. And I, there's more about Caesarea Philippi that I didn't realize. Like, there were a lot of hesitancy. The, Peter, the, mm -hmm. the disciples probably thought it was crazy that they were right. there. Um, but that, and Jesus was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, this is the rock that my church is going to be built. And like, all of this. And Jesus knew that later Peter was going to deny him and all of that. Like he knew all of that already. Yet he was like, yes, this faith, you know, is going to be the corners. I just, what? I think of a movie too. But like, <laughs> being in that walk, you know, in yeah. that passage, and that, that's just crazy. Well, and I didn't. I didn't continue on in that passage. Let's not forget Jesus' response to Peter's great confession. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter, mm -hmm. but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you, right? So the whole point of, of, of all of this is, is right, Catherine. I mean, and it is. It's super scary when you ask those questions because it's a lot easier to be like, okay, well, I'm done. I'm out. You know? uh, but then if you start to ask questions, you're like, oh, here it goes. This is going to get really weird really quick or really awkward, or uncomfortable, or angry, or I'm gonna have a fight on my hands, whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it's just a ton of faith to have to start asking these questions, because you know where that conversation's gonna go, and it's gonna be brutal. But ask the why. Ask why. Why do you say that? Why do you believe that? Or have you ever wondered, considered? In my experience, a lot of times you don't even have to have an answer. Like, if they say, if you ask exactly. Because they're being and revealed so, of their true ignorance. Yeah, a lot of times it's it's either one people don't want to be questioned because they don't have to <coughs> themselves, or two they just want to talk about themselves and why they think, and they just want an opportunity to share what they believe, and so you mm -hmm. just give them that space and asking questions. Is yeah, no doubt. And, and they just weren't expecting to be put in that corner. <coughs> right. Yeah. And sometimes, like even when in your if you're in like you know talking to even other Christians who are saying things that you don't agree with or saying things that you think are not, you know, sound doctrine. And instead of being like, you're wrong, I've even had situations where I was like, okay, I don't believe in that, but I posed their statement that they made as a question back to them. And I was like, oh, so you're saying this? Or what is what does that mean? And they're like, oh, uh, uh, well, uh, that's a good question. Like, that's just what you told me. <laughs> I don't know. And then I, you know, you don't have to say anything after that because 
it's evident for itself that right. you know there should be. You don't have to say that was wrong. See, you can just be like, okay, and the people who are listening or you and them, they can just come to an understanding that. But you don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> In a very gracious, loving way, that's not Great. condemning or anything. Just, exactly. just trying to encourage thinking. Right. Yeah. Well, let's close in prayer. It looks like I've been yakking for over an hour for you guys. <laughs> Father, again, we, we praise you so much for your word and for your truth. Um, as always, Lord, I ask for these opportunities where we can have these conversations. Um, and let us always remember that it's by your power in your words that we speak the truth of the gospel. So uh, please don't let us depend on our own learning or our own selves, um, but to always be prayerfully requesting that you speak through us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.